Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, conservation, and importantly, conservation, Lee, uh, conservation, and importantly, <laughs> appreciation. The show is broadcast from 3CR studios in Melbourne on 855am. Got there in the end. Yeah, exactly. Good work. Finally made it through. Uh, that is my co-host, Adam Cardellini. Uh, I'm Nick Pendergrass hosting today. Our guest today is... Melissa Lang, uh, talking about social work and animals. Thanks for coming in, Melissa. Thanks for having me. And before we get into all of that, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Sally from Out of the Pan. Another great show, really interesting points there on performance and how that relates to political issues and stuff like that. So definitely check out Out of the Pan, um, 3cr.org.au, and you can listen live 12 to 1 every Sunday as well. Uh, so I thought just to start things off, uh, Melissa, maybe you'd just give listeners a bit of an overview, like what is your research about well, in terms of the topic? Sure. Um, So I'm a PhD candidate at RMIT University um, and so I'm looking at uh, social work with interspecies families in the family violence and homelessness sectors in Victoria. Um, And so going into the research I was interested in finding out uh, the nature of companion animal inclusive practice, uh, how practitioners frame their practice and what sort of got in the way of, of them doing so and what kind of, uh, what ways did they envisage um, that practice could look like? Yeah, and I'm always interested to uh, sort of learn how people got into, into these issues. I guess your research, um, and maybe this is from my perspective, but kind of seems to fit within that broad idea of intersectionality of like different forms of oppression and where they come together and those kind of things. And I'm always curious for those who uh, do research or activism or both or just concerned about a wide range of issues. Um, yeah, how did you come to these different issues? We've got in there sort of, you know, feminist issues of social justice and um, yeah, animals are in there too. And how did, how did this all come together and where did animals come into the picture yeah, for you? Good question. So I came through uh, my social work degree um, and there was no mention of animals so we live with animals our lives are intertwined with animals but interestingly there's no mention of them until I did a course on uh, working with violence and abuse um, and suddenly there was mention of the the use of, of animals by um, perpetrators of family violence as a form of uh, power and control over, over women I thought okay, this is really interesting. We need to be thinking about animals in our social work. Um, What could that look like? And so, uh, you know, this topic kind of got under my skin and I did an honours honours project looking at ways that social workers could um, encounter animals or include animals in their practice. Um, And I decided to keep going and and do a PhD on it. So... uh, yeah. Yeah, and it's a, sort of a it's an issue that I've noticed has um, become more prevalent in quite quite recently, only the last sort of uh, maybe five to ten years. Um, I think there's some work in Australia. There's a I remember seeing a conference, Lu- Lucy's Project. Yeah, yeah. So Lucy's Project, I'm involved with their work, and yeah, so great. they they're a peak body who are looking to raise awareness on on the the abuse of animals in in domestic violence context so they are they do a lot of capacity building they run um, 
conferences to join together academics, um, practitioners on the ground, animal workers, human workers. So they're doing a lot of really great work and so that's driven by Anna Ludlick who lives in Lismore. So yeah, really good. Really good. There's a lot of there's a there's a wave of stuff happening, which is very exciting. Yeah, fantastic. And both in social work and um, I think in forensic science as well. The the the, the abuse that's perpetrated against humans um, through animals and and the issues that that faces for the animals and the people who care for the animals. That's right. Yeah. Mm. And I should also mention, I mean, this is kind of obvious from the topic, but I guess maybe a bit of a content warning. We are discussing issues around family violence today. I don't think we'll be going graphically into that. It's more sort of how animals fit into the equation. But, yeah, just a heads up for anyone, um, yeah, who might be, you know, sensitive to that issue, affected by the issue, etc. And I thought maybe to start things off, you touched on this a little bit about how animals are often part of the mix when it comes to, like, abusive relationships and those kind of things and how different, um, yeah, different individuals can be affected by this. So could you uh, discuss the or define the concept of interspecies animal sorry interspecies families yeah so the idea of interspecies families is that um, uh, I guess for the human services to see companion animals I felt it's a necessary first first step to humanize them which obviously we know is, is problematic but uh, this is a first step this is where we're at in the human services and so I define interspecies families as people and animals who are considered a single unit the closest most intimate source of love and support um, so it extends beyond the, what is connoted by the word pet um, which obviously um, evokes a sense of property and ownership mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could touch on your experience, and you touched on this a bit already in terms of doing the degree and animals not being a part of it, but, yeah, I guess social work sort of works to help people, I guess, quite, um, like, narrowly, not necessarily other species. So I'm talk a bit about the, yeah, your experience of doing that degree and also, I guess, the occupation in general in terms of, I guess, um, structurally the focus is on more on humans, even though your work reveals individuals kind of working outside of those structures to help animals. But, yeah, so I guess the human human centric nature of social work yeah so the human na- human centric nature of social work i mean we're working in in very constrained environments where there's um you know not not a great deal of of resources um to actually help humans but we know that humans live with companion animals and uh for people who we could call vulnerable um who social workers are working with um animals are really important to them so um people who are experiencing homelessness are um, you know, more closely bonded to their animals than than perhaps the housed um, the housed populations, and so there's a real importance for for social workers to to honour this bond and to see it as a form of resilience to to help people to you know live the best life that they can, but also um, to to be. Um, safe and secure. So really, uh, I guess, recognising the importance of the bond and this relationship is, is, is a form of working in the best way that we can with humans. Mm-hmm. And th- there might be some um, misconceptions about animals in situations like um, with homeless, homeless or people who are homeless. Um, how, and, and people might think, well, you know, maybe that's not a good situation for the animal. Um, how do we, how do we uh, figure out that, that sort of complex situation how do we look after the people and the animals is is it true that um animals living with homeless people are not cared for or or are they cared for yeah i mean my experience and the experience of the the uh, participants in my study is that 
they're 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 so loved, they're so adored, and they're so well cared for. They're really closely bonded um, with their human guardians. I mean, they've gone through exceptionally difficult circumstances. They've gone through trauma of, say, family violence. They've gone through, um, you know, trauma of violence that that comes from from sleeping rough or, or from living outside of a house. And so, in actual fact. Perhaps it is the case that those animals have a, have a have a better lived experience than than some housed housed animals who we don't know what goes on behind behind closed doors. So these perceptions that I guess um, animals who are living with homelessness pe- homeless people, um, the perceptions or the, the the stereotypes that we have about uh, homeless people not being able to look after themselves and therefore not being able to look after animals is really just not the case mm, so there's it, it's almost like i mean i know that uh for dogs for instance they they absolutely would love to be able to spend all of their time with you if they could they're, they're a very social um social sort of species and we've built up that that relationship with dogs for instance for over many thousands of years but in with with people who are homeless um they have that opportunity to maintain that bond all day, most days, which is much better, I, I imagine, for the dogs than than if they're left at home for 12 hours while the family is out at work and Absolutely. they're suffering from um, anxiety and um, separation. Yeah, that's, that's, a really, right. that's a really interesting thing to think about, about our judgments of um, both people and animals in those situations. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I think there's we had a discussion about this a while ago um, with um, Harley and Dilan talking about their trip to Palestine and how, yeah, sometimes in non-Western countries, like we kind of think the, you know, companion animals and they, they kind of have quite a different relationship in, in many cases in, um, yeah, in non-Western countries, obviously it varies from country to country as well, but often a different sort of relationship. Like I know I've got family in Indonesia and people like have a dog in inverted commas, but the dog just does their own thing during the day and they feed them and that kind of thing. It's not so much they're always in the house, for example. And, and that like and also going to thailand as well seeing the dogs sort of you know roam around in sort of packs of, of, of friends i guess as well which is kind of mm. different as well and like without the humans being there and not to necessarily glorify it there definitely are downsides in terms of like a lack of veterinary care those kind of things but i thought those uh dogs seem to have greater freedom than dogs in western society mm. and i think maybe a similar thing like someone who works nine to five it seems very ordered and the dogs kind of kept inside uh, but people who, like with homeless people there's more contact and and maybe a yeah, greater greater degree of um, freedom and stimulation than many people who work you know, full-time standard jobs as well. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, and we're going to go to track in a moment. Maybe I would get you to, to define one term. We've already said human-centric basically explains it, but do you want to define anthropocentrism, which might come up throughout the discussion? Yeah, so yeah. Um, the definition of anthropocentrism, there's a lot of people, a lot of ideas of it. Um, so it's... It, it, it refers to a form of human-centeredness that places humans not on, not only at the centre of everything, but it makes us the most important measure of all things. And so, you know, the human services are, by definition, mm-hmm. anthropocentric. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is really scope and there is a lot of change and a lot of shifts that I've certainly noticed in the time that I've been looking um, at this topic and looking at these issues. Um, that's really shifting and it's really exciting and it's very heartening. Yeah. And in in, in um, relation to that, do you, do you mean it's shifting in terms of we're not only so I, I feel like some of the issue or some one of the issues I see in this space when I read literature or come across um, people talking about it might be that it that animals are a way to recognise human harm rather than 
also recognizing that it's harm to the animals and we should take care of the animals that happens in in some situations as a as a consequence of of looking after the humans first so That's right. is is it changing like are we are we reducing that anthropocentrism to also recognize we're not just looking at the harms towards animals so that we can see violence that might be perpetrated against humans, but also for the animal's sake itself. Is that starting to happen? So I think it's a stepping stone. I think certainly in the interviews that I did, there were, I mean, um, you know, the the animals as being kind of a sentinel or, or a marker of um, violence mm. in a home. Um, you know, that's an entry point for workers to, to, be, to be, you know, to get women out of violent homes. Mm. But certainly there were workers who talked about how they were most focused on the vulnerability of the animal and, and you know they couldn't necessarily talk talk to their colleagues about how they were most worried about the, the well-being of the dog than perhaps maybe the humans who were actually more freely able to be helped mm. so um, there's certainly a, a spectrum of concerns but I do I do think that that animals being a, a sentinel or, or, a, or a marker of violence against humans or, or human ills, it's a stepping stone to yep. that broader, broader yeah. awareness. It brings it onto, onto people's radars, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's good to hear that it is a stepping stone and you yep. think that it's shifting yep, as yep. well. That's great. So we're joined by Melissa Lang talking about social work and animals, and we're going to hear about some stories of social workers, I guess, moving beyond that more like official, like human-centric nature and actually helping animals in their work. Uh, before that, we're going to go to a track. Uh, do you want to talk about this song? It's by Aurora. Anything you want to say about this, Melissa? Yeah, so I guess I, I chose this track because I feel like, um, you know, the workers that, that I uh, spoke to our warriors. They're warriors for the animals. They're 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 kind of going out of their comfort zone, but also, you know, the strength of of the women and the the service users and the animals themselves. So there's a real sense and and kind of um, strength that I think is embodied by this. One. I fall asleep in my own tears. I cry for the world for everyone.
Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurang Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurang country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japurang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japurang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. Definitely check out that website and, and get involved. As is, yeah, we are talking about a treaty here in Victoria, but while continuing to destroy sacred indigenous sites. So, yeah, definitely check out that website, learn more, and get involved. Uh, you're listening to Freedom of Species. We're joined by Melissa Lang talking about social work and animals. And in this section, we're going to hear about some uh, dodgy stories, some um, examples of social workers sort of, I guess, going beyond the bounds of their occupation to actually help animals. So. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so just to, I guess, provide a context to start with, there's mm-hmm. there's a really broad spectrum of, of practices that I'm calling companion-animal-inclusive practices across the field. And so what I'm going to talk about now um, are workers who are really having to um, practice resistance to include animals in their practice um, in a subversive manner. And so when I say subversive, I'm talking about um, intentionally small-scale practice behaviours of caring resistance that they um, engage in to, uh, that fall outside of the procedural, professional and sometimes legal boundaries. I'm not going to talk about anything that's um, outside of the legal. Mm-hmm. And so I talked about them as, as dodgy stories because one of the one of my participants, she called them her, her dodgy stories and, and I thought it really encapsulates what they are. So I've got three of those. And the first one um, is from a social worker who was in employed at a Melbourne court and that court was the first port of call uh, after victim survivors of family violence had uh, contacted police to report violence in the home. And so women who presented, they were most often in a really high-risk category where going home uh, from court wasn't safe. And so the women, and they were predominantly women, often had children with them, uh, with their non-human family members still at home. So in this particular case, a woman was seeking to withdraw an intervention order that was in place against her partner, and he was also at the court. So it's quite, there's a dangerous, it's a dangerous situation. And so the social worker was risk assessing this woman and she disclosed that she wanted to escape from her home but she was concerned about the welfare of her puppy. And she said, I do want to go but I can't leave this puppy behind. And so the perpetrator had had purchased this puppy for the family um, to to replace a cat that he'd killed. So he had for me, had a history of of animal abuse and we knew that the the puppy wouldn't be safe alone with the perpetrator. Um, So... While they were discussing options, the partner, who was quite agitated, sensed that the order um, wasn't being removed, he was caught with a knife and so he was arrested and he was taken to a police station nearby. And this gave the social worker and the woman a chance to make some plans for the puppy. Um, and so the social worker said to the woman, go home, get the puppy, bring it here and we'll figure it out. I'll make some phone calls in the meantime. So. While the woman was off collecting her puppy, the social worker reached out to uh, rescue groups via social media 
um, again, out of scope of, of her practice, and she found a couple to foster the puppy, and so she uh, arranged to, to drive the puppy there of her own of her own mm. volition. So in the meantime, um, the social worker had to finish her day at work, so she had the puppy. The puppy had been brought to brought to the court, um, and she had to hide the puppy underneath her desk in a box. Um, and so this is after the 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 you know the heartbreaking separation of the family. So the woman and her children went went off to research um, uh, to refuge. So we know that that a, a puppy in any kind of case is is hard to is is kind of lively and hard to hard to kind of keep in a box. And this this was a traumatized puppy. So um, she got through the day by smuggling the puppy outside to toilet and to ensure that her manager didn't see him. And she drove him to the home of the of the foster carers and, and the dog stayed for seven months um, with these foster carers until the family could be reunited in um, companion animal friendly accommodation. Um, and during this time, the social worker actually arranged access visits for the woman and the puppy um, and helped the po- foster carers with financial support that she arranged via what she called dodgy fungi- funding applications. Um, and so she framed this practice as, as being dodgy and she thought that the reason she could get away with it was, and, and I quote, I was actually really arrogant. It was just, ah, fire me, that approach to things. I've always kind of run around with an overinflated sense of self. Um, and so she was motivated, I guess, by a belief that social workers should have a duty of care to all beings, not just people. Um, and, and so that was a way that she could keep keep it an interspecies family um, together I think I think that's really interesting that um, they they called this dodgy I, I I think it's absolutely a beautiful story absolutely and it's the right thing of like course this, it is. this social worker did what is right and it's so sad that that within her workplace that it it, it could have cost her something yep. within that workplace and like she saved a life possibly yeah like or quite, she saved maybe four lives but, yeah exactly yeah because if, if the family went back to to um to save the puppy themselves that could have been a really dangerous situation so yeah. it's just oh good on that person yeah. oh, i want to give him a big hug yeah. <laughs> she's, she's a legend and, and i guess that also like that that drive like we have to look after the whole family that seemed becoming purely from her not from her degree not from her workplace or anything like that just no. more sort of internal sort of value i guess exactly yeah yeah yeah. Cool. Um, do you have story number two? I do. Story number two was a social worker who was a new graduate and she'd not, not long begun work at um, a feminist family violence outreach service. Um, and so uh, she'd helped a woman to leave her violent partner and she'd gotten uh, the woman to safe transitional housing. Um, but in this time, the woman had reconciled with her partner and as they entered what was no- what's known as the honeymoon phase of the cycle of power and abuse, the perpetrator c- gave the woman a very small puppy as a Christmas present. And so the woman was distressed about the prospect of having a dog at her home and she said to the social worker, I can't have this puppy here. I don't want this puppy. So, so this the presence of this, this dog um, had the potential to, to compromise mm. her accommodation because it... it, it she wasn't allowed to have um, an animal there. And so the perpetrator had been quite angry that the woman wouldn't accept his gift of the puppy, um, and so he decided to bring the puppy over anyway. And while the social worker was with the woman and was discussing the safest way forward, given that the, the situation was now escalating, uh, the aggravated perpetrator arrived with what was a tiny guinea pig-sized little dog and handed her to the, to the woman. Um, 
and at this point the perpetrator was was becoming more and more angry and abusive and and the social worker decided um, that she was going to call the police so risk the risk was really elevating um, and at this point the perpetrator grabbed the puppy back from the woman yelled fuck you and threw the puppy against the wall of a house and, and took off and so the woman was upset understandably um, really adamant that she couldn't keep this puppy who had survived but was was seizing on the ground and the social worker told me in the interview she said I had no boundaries I was working for a completely boundless agency and I said I'll buy the puppy of you off you sign this and she'll be mine so um she did this to ensure that the perpetrator wouldn't be able to come back and, and make a claim um, on the ownership of the dog. Um, and this wasn't a problem because the puppy obviously wasn't microchipped or registered. So with the woman now safe, the social worker took the puppy to the vet and $900 later, the puppy went to her new home with the social worker and lived a long life with her. Um, she had a, a, an acquired brain injury that caused her to run into things and in the words of the social worker was generally crazy and manic but was very very loved um and so sort of the way that she framed that was that she was super renegade all the way through uh she has never played by the rules because um she thinks that we work in an industry where perpetrators don't play by the rules but the women have to and they win because they cheat and why, why aren't we cheating back so she she claimed well i'll cheat too Mm. Wow. Right, yeah. So that that's got me really emotional. That story, yeah, that's yeah. full on. Mm. Um, but it, and it also sort of points to the perpetrator using an animal to control and manipulate um, the the woman that's in that right. case. And yeah. it, it, it's a it's another way of sort of controlling how they can live in the world. You now have this responsibility of this looking yeah. after this dog that's going to put more emotional pressure on you, all of that sort of stuff. And I can manipulate and use that to to control you even further. And it's yeah. just horrendous. And yeah. and when they can't have that control, destroy the puppy. Oh my God, that's mm. just ugh. Yeah, definitely um social work sounds like yeah, you're definitely dealing with some <sighs> very intense kind of uh issues. Um, um yeah. Yeah, it's kind of that sort of situations and definitely, obviously, to work that industry, you are, yeah, have to have a lot of uh, compassion. And, yeah, it's great to see some of, the, some of these uh, social workers have compassion mm. for the humans involved as, as well as the animals. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Are, are we ready to go to number three? Number or, three. Or, or, we can go, or we can go to a track if you'd rather? Or? Uh, this was probably uh, a little bit shorter. Yeah? Okay, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. so this, this social worker was working in family violence case management um, and she told a story that her case... Uh, that her team leader had told her. And so the team leader had been supporting a woman and her children who were staying in res refuge, so they were already in refuge, and they'd been separated uh, from a dog who the woman claimed belonged to her, but as part of the power and control tactics, the perpetrator wouldn't let the, the dog go uh, with her, saying that the dog was his. And the perpetrator was a manufacturer of illicit drugs and he had security cameras all over the exterior and the interior of, of their home. And so the police had gone to the home as they were looking for the perpetrator on that drug-related drug matter. And the social worker's team leader explained uh, to the police that she needed to visit the property mm. to retrieve some belongings of, of the mm. woman. And she did this with the intent of collecting the dog. Mm. And so the team leader went to collect the family member that the woman cared for, um, but she withheld from police the details of the actual property because under the, the law, it may have been the case that the dog was the perpetrator's property. It was a little bit unsure. Mm. So the team leader was definitely acting in a legal grey area. 
Um, and when she got to the property with the police, she searched for the dog and she found him, um, in the social worker's words, really high on the floor of the drug lab. And so the team leader picked up the dog and she noticed a camera uh, in the ceiling of, of the room and she held the dog up to the camera and she said, bye, daddy. Mm-hmm. So the dog was reunited with his family at the refuge, um, which was one of those rare refuges that, that would accept pets um, and they were all able to be rehomed together. And that, that, that story really actually highlights the issues with property, like with animals being classed as property. Absolutely. Because you're, you're not as if you're not allowed to go in there and rescue this dog that, that is being abused. It's high in this situation and it's being um, used to manipulate uh, other, other people, not in a good situation for itself, its own health and safety, but as if you're not allowed to go in there to save that life because they're like a chair or they're a spoon or whatever, mm. they're a piece of property. Stealing. It's, yeah, it's disgusting. Mm. And yeah. it's so good. I am I'm really uplifted to hear that these people are doing this. Mm. Um, it's, yeah, I mm. want to go and I think social workers that are doing these sorts of things need a big pat on the back yeah. and, and some real encouragement and support. Mm. Yeah, and even moving beyond companion animals, the same reason as when someone breaks into a farm and rescues an animal, they're stealing some something rather than as many of us would do individuals, like saving someone. And mm. so that that, yeah. that is how the law sees things. And obviously there are people who think outside of that and these social workers are some examples of that. But yeah, unfortunately that that is the, I guess, the, the, the legal reality um, of this, of um, dogs as, as property or animals in general as property. And I think maybe that might be a good point to go into. I know um, we've had Zoe Sutton uh, on the show before to discuss um, pet, pets and um, we've, to discuss pets and animal liberation. And um, yeah, Zoe, Zoe's work is quite critical of the idea of owning pets and, um, yeah, basically argues that her research, which is part of, I guess, the same sort of field in a way as Melissa's work or similar field looking at sociology and animals, um, and Zoe argues that even um, good relationships with um with companion animals, they're still oppressive and, and yeah, dogs, like you mentioned at the start in terms of interspecies families, in terms of uh, the notion of pet evokes property and ownership. And we actually called that episode with Zoe Pets and Animal Liberation quite deliberately the highlights mm. of those oppressive you know, yeah, oppressive uh, elements of the relationship of of owning pets in the first place. Um, and on, on the flip side, I, I think you know your work and the concept of interspecies families is really important because, like, think of uh, my two dogs personally. It's like I acknowledge that they're property under the law and that they're sort of dependent on me and have limited freedom. But I do as best as I can to as much as possible treat them as members of the family as well. So yeah, anything you'd like to say about? Because again, I, I see in a way these. Uh, two different fields or two different types of work coming from different places but also I see parallels in terms of both trying to advocate for animals and raise the status of animals but yeah anything you want to say about all the all these issues yeah I guess it's you know sort of critical engagement with with what you might sort of call a post-pet world is kind of definitely outside of the scope of of my research um but uh you know I would say that that the idea of uh, decentering humans from from human services work is is certainly a, a it's certainly a way of of improving the lived experience of 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 these companion animals and so while we can you know m- perhaps argue that that erases the the power differential in in the relationship um, not even uh, conceptualizing or, or including 
um, animals within that human frame, they're not helped in any way. So I guess it, it's like a stepping stone, I suppose, to to that idea of more critically engaging of the idea of pets. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think Zoe's work does that as well in mm. terms of raising those criticisms of the institution of pet ownership um, while also arguing that there are, um, you know, we should do, you know, those animals we already have here and already domesticate, we should do as, as well as possible, like in terms of, um, she talks about being revolutionary in terms of like letting her dog on the couch and those kind of things. Yeah. So actually... <laughs> Um, yeah, trying to you know, push push the boundaries of you know, this lower place pets are given while also acknowledging the inherent limitations of that relationship as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. How, how revolutionary is it if you um, let your dog sleep at the top of the bed on your pillow and you turn around to sleep at the end of the bed so they're comfortable? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I have done that as well. I've done that as well. We had that pillow down at the other end because the yeah. dog wants to go at the top. So, yeah, definitely revolutionary to, yeah. to an extent. Uh, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think that is an, an interesting discussion. And, and, again, Zoe's work brings that out. So you can check that out. Uh, Zoe Sutton, the episode is called Pets and Animal Liberation. You can find all that and all our episodes at freedomofspecies.org as well as on iTunes. Um, and getting back to the resistance, and, again, we, we've, you've given these stories of social workers kind of almost like going against their industry or at least bringing in mm. concerns which aren't sort of an official part of their industry or that their occupation in many instances. And you mentioned there about an, a companion animal-friendly um, accommodation, like a refuge allowed companion animals. So do you have any examples of... Um, of more institutionalised resistance to this, so whether that's changes to social work degrees, whether that is examples of ref- refuge allowing, you know, both human and non-human animals, etc. So yeah, and anything happening on the on the bigger scale, not to discount these individual acts of resistance, but we also obviously need that bigger change as well. Yeah, so there's definitely in in, in the data that that I've collected, there's definitely, I guess, uh, examples across across the full spectrum of there's organisations where that really, I guess, adopt a business as usual approach to including animals. So uh, they've got uh, companion animal inclusive um, refuges. Um, you know, they've got questions on their intake forms where in a domestic violence situation that asks um, about all family members, including the animals. Um, so it's very much business as usual. It's very much officially sanctioned. It's part of the um, the training process when new workers come into the organisation. So you've got really what's called best practice. Mm. Um, and again, these are organisations that are having to do their own funding to to so this this funding isn't coming from government, um, which is really interesting. Um, and but on the other end of the spectrum, you've got sort of the more resistances. And so I guess the 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 my dodgy stories that I spoke about were workers who were having to do it under the radar so they weren't supported by their co-workers and so somewhere in between you've got um, uh, so for example in in the in the homelessness sector you've got I spoke to workers who uh, part of their practice was organizing low-cost vet care for 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 the companion animals uh, organizing um, uh, vaccinations dissexing um, educating service users on how to actually care for companion animals. So these are people who are living in intergenerational poverty who pe- perhaps haven't learnt the how useful it is or how helpful it is to, to not have litters and litters of kittens. Mm. So there's a really broad, I guess, spectrum or, or different types of practices that, that, that are, are being enacted. But again, 
these are just these are kind of dependent upon an animal an animal person in an mm. organization or, or a series of, of people and so you know if there's more of a focus on embedding this information into degrees across the human services not just social work it's going to um, mean that there's more equity of access to these services not just dependent upon um, you know being fortunate enough to work in an organization that has um, family violence brokerage that can be used for animals so mm. a lot more consistency and you've mentioned a couple of times just quickly yeah. um, how that, that there's refuges that do accept animals with with people but yep. others that don't do you know what the proportion of that is is it many that actually accept animals yeah so I guess I I, I don't have sort of um, uh, concrete figures mm. on, on what the percentage certainly mm. in the the sample that I that I looked at there were some pocket geographic pockets that that were better um, serviced in that regard mm. um, so for example um, in, in the homelessness sector, if there are freestanding properties um, that a family is moving into, it's more likely that they might be able to bring a dog because they've got a backyard. Mm. Whereas a single person, um, perhaps a, a woman who, um, you know, is escaping family violence, her, her children have been taken away, she doesn't have a backyard, so she can't take her dog with her. So mm. um, I don't sort of have, I guess, concrete figures yep. around what's, what, what's happening and what's not. I could definitely say that in... Um, in the US, there's a lot more innovation um, and a lot more happening in terms of more shelters, more refuges being companion animal friendly. It's certainly not the norm, though. That it's not the norm. Friendly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, to, towards the institutional resistance to um, sort of including animals uh, in this work, do you do you know much about how the different sectors that might come across this um, that might um, touch on this issue you know from vets who might see animals who have been abused and have an indication of abuse at home to social workers to police do they talk to each other well i definitely i mean this is kind of one of the things that i've been started to to be interested in in my data is is this idea of siloing between animal services and mm. human services and you know how can we break those down so that these organizations are all working together so i did speak to some social workers who were working with police and police were actually part of the subversion so there was one story where um a social worker was helping a woman to to escape and so the police uh, a police officer put a cat into a cat carrier and put the cat carrier into an evidence bag and was able to take the the cat um <laughs> So there's bag, definitely yeah. little, little, little cross-disciplinary resistances happening. Mm, mm, yeah, and I think these institutionalised um, developments are really important because it'd be great again, though, good on those social workers doing the right thing and standing up for all uh, all members of the interspecies families. But it'd be great if they were supported by their occupation, by mm. their company, by their workplace, rather than having to have these as dodgy things. These could just yes. be a part of actually helping people, which is kind of what social work is about, right? Yes. Or help, yep. helping individuals, I should say, regardless of species that it could be about. Uh, but we better go to a track. We've got a, a song by a queen. Anything you want to say about this song, Melissa? Well, I'm a huge cat lover. I have um, all of my cats tattooed on myself. <laughs> and so um, my cats are, you know, <laughs> a big part of the what inspires me um, to this practice. And so it may be a little known fact that Freddie Mercury was a huge cat lover and he named this song after his cat Delilah. You're listening to Freedom of Species and we're talking about social work and animals and you're listening to 3CR 
855-AM. Pub Football League proudly presents its inaugural Pride Round, Paint in Victoria Park, Rainbow, on Saturday, August 24th. 
celebrating diversity in pub football, this free community event offers a laid-back afternoon of gender-inclusive Aussie rules football, alongside DJs and a charity barbecue. Saturday, August 24th, gates open at 12.30. For more information, including pub footies August and September fixture, visit www.rpfl.com.au. The Renegade Pub Football League is a 3CR supporter. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR. We're discussing social work and animals with Melissa Lang. Uh, so, Melissa, it's been a really interesting conversation to this point. I just wanted to ask, um, we've talked a lot about dogs, and I wonder, so cats are very popular um, companions in the home. Are they? Are you, do you come across similar um, issues with cats being abused and um, being used for the manipulation of, of, of others in family violence or those sorts of situations? Yeah, I mean, cats are definitely part of the... They're a target of, of the use of power and control by perpetrators. Um, I don't know sort of what the numbers are. Certainly I spoke to one social worker who, who had a history of working in, in child protection and, and she seemed to think that there were more cats that she came into into contact with, cats who were abused along with the children. So, mm. um, you know, there's this perception, I guess, that, that cats are a bit more resilient, but, you know, it... it, it it seems that they're, they're targets of violence um, just as much as, as dogs. Yeah, okay. And another another question that I've sort of been wondering as we've been speaking is we mentioned at the very start of the show that um, that social work is very anthropocentric, uh, focuses on animals and that, on humans, and that's but that's changing. Do you do you see a future where we actually have social work? for animals, where we're actually seeing it's not just animals in family violence situations, but, you know, I've, I've lived in a, a shared home with where the people kept their Labrador in a, like a two metre by four metre backyard for 12 hours a day, and I consider that a form of, of violence towards mm. that animal. Is, it, is there going to be social work for animals where we go in and protect animals for, in their, their own interests? just for them? Yeah, so I guess I'd like to think that there might be scope for something called a critical posthumanist social work that that um, looks at, that addresses the, the welfare or, or the flourishing of, of all species. Um, certainly I know in New Zealand the SPCA is... Um, being run by a social worker so there's a there's a drive to to really um, acknowledge that the intersection between um, human health concerns human welfare concerns and animal welfare concerns and so you know there's really scope to to work more with the RSPCA um, you know uh, I, I know that I spoke to social workers who who were often quite concerned about the, the welfare of, of some of the animals that they were coming into contact with if that was due to um, 
poverty or, or if that was due to the, the effects of, of having lived in a violent home. So, But because they didn't necessarily have training in, in animal welfare or, or weren't necessarily aware of the Protection um, Against Cruelty to Animals Act, mm. they didn't really know what the threshold was. So certainly mm. if there was um, a, a critical posthumanist social work would really train um, workers to you know, recognise um, what it is to, to help animals flourish alongside humans um, it, rather than workers having to figure it out on the fly or, 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 or it being, um, I guess, at the mercy of, of them figuring out ha- what the threshold is, is for violence or what the threshold is for, for um, responsible animal, um, companion animal um, ownership, which mm-hmm. is obviously a problematic term, mm-hmm. um, imposing their standards on people so mm. yeah there's definitely yeah. scope isn't there yeah i suppose so it's it's, a, it's about maybe identifying what it means to have an animal in a healthy environment yeah. and we we sort of do that with children we have we have standards i imagine in social work for children what a healthy environment for children is or for people is and um i suppose taking some those sorts of frameworks and applying them to animals as well yeah and so the in, you know the best interests model for 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 children and there's a there's certainly legislation that that um, workers uh, work with it's a mm. it's a it's a legal instrument that that enables them to take action to protect children um, you know can we strengthen uh, what we can use to protect animals as well. At the moment, there's there's really um, there's there's not enough funding for the RSPCA. I can't speak to a lot of that because that's I haven't spoken to mm. to um, you know the animal services. But certainly, there's scope to you know speak to them and to figure out ways that everybody can work together in a more sort of holistic um, way. Mm. And I think also the difference there between the children and animals gets back to the idea property. of animals as property. Yeah. And so the example animal meant animal Adam the animal mentioned which isn't an insult but um, we're all animals but yeah Adam mentioned the idea of like yeah animals being given such like yeah have a, such a an unstimulating and just a horrible life is often not considered as abuse because they're property and yeah another example um, I know I'm a partner um, her, her family her neighbours had a dog and they were basically just used as an alarm system really so yeah. it's outside all day no stimulation never walked anything like like that and the idea that because they're property that probably isn't enough to be classified as cruelty yeah. uh, because they're property so there are very specific things that you can't do to animals but even when we own our like we own a car it's like there are certain things we have to do to service them and that kind of thing so there is some limitation how we use that property mm-hmm. and it's kind of similar with, with like you know, companion animals as well as, as property um, and yeah I'm working on a paper with a law professor at the moment and actually there are parallels there with kids in that kids were considered property until relatively recently yeah. as well yeah. so I think we could sort of yeah again it seems that all oh, animals should be property it's like well kids were considered property a while ago as well but we are running out of time so I just want to hand over to Melissa to give any final thoughts anything you know you wanted to get to that we haven't got to also any links that you'd like to promote your own Twitter or anything else uh, to finish up with well I guess sort of touching on that idea of children I mean that's something that's come through in all of the stories so much that that workers uh, so not well workers themselves but also service users consider their animals to be their children they've Mm -hmm. um, the the bond is that is that strong and so 
um, you know, what, what would it mean for us to consider um, animals as children? Mm. Um, in terms of uh, spooking links, so I've got I've got a bit of work in the pipeline at the moment, so I don't sort of uh, have anything explicit to share, but certainly um, everything that I do, I post on Twitter, mm. um, which is Yilang Yilang. Um, I think you'll be post. I think you you tweeted me out, and yeah, yeah. So they've shared that. It'll be in the notes at freedomofspecies.org, but also if you're listening to this live and it's not up there yet, if you go to Freedom of Species Facebook and, and Twitter, you can find Melissa's Twitter. You can also find um, a link to Melissa's talk, as well as the other talks from the Sociology and Animals Conference from last year, or the Sociology and Animals stream from a broader Sociology Conference as well. So check all that out if you're interested. Um, go ahead, Adam. It, I, I just I was really moved by some of the stories that you've mentioned today. Is, is there any way that people can support social workers that are doing this, or is I, I just don't know? I have no idea about this, and maybe it's not there yet, um, or there's no infrastructure to do, to support social workers in this way. But what are what are the opportunities? Are there? Well, I guess you know, students coming through coming through programs, um, it's an opportunity for them to you know to, to challenge their educators to to think about um, incorporating animals. Mm. Um, certainly, people who are using who 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 are consumers it's the worst term, but consumers of of um, social work services and other human services, um, you know, they can self advocate. They can impress the importance of of um, of workers to be. Um, uh, to be supporting them, but I guess as a society as a whole, you know, recognizing um, that our companion animals have the right to be in human spaces, and mm. and um, uh, yeah, but that's maybe a question that I might need to think about. Mm. Yeah, cool. We're nearly out of time. I wanted to give Adam maybe just one minute or so. To, there's, I think, quite an important story that we should give a mention to. Yeah, so um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the big the big group that does all the work on climate change or brings together all the research and science on climate change um, and brings out reports uh, every few years, They there was a leaked report from them where they basically say that um, reducing emissions from travel and from electricity generation, fossil fuels, will not be enough to reach climate goals of 1.5 degrees and whatnot, or, or to reach the goals that we're after, and that we must um, drastically reduce the emissions from um, agriculture, and that diet transitions or transitions towards vegetarian and vegan diets are absolutely vital. And that we won't be able to do, we won't be able to um, create a safe environment or a safe climate without um, without significant tra- transitions to vegan diets and ve- vegetarian diets. But let's just go straight to vegan diets. Skip that vegetarian thing. <laughs> um, and so, watch this space. I think it's going to be a very interesting discussion over the next um, little while on this topic. Mm. And I just want to very briefly, briefly mention the Morrison government is talking about tough new penalties for activists to incite destructive break-ins to property like animal agriculture, including up to five years in prison. And I just wanted to mention as well, these laws have been specifically targeted at vegans. And I think we should always be concerned about law, uh, laws that target a specific group, whether it is vegans, whether it is bikies or whoever it is. It's like there's already laws that if, if a vegan does a crime, there's already a law for that. If a bikie does a crime, there's already a law for that. So I think we should always be very skeptical uh, for laws that target any kind of specific group as well. So uh, get in touch, info at freedomofspecies.org. If you'd like to email us, you can also connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. We're at FOS Radio on Twitter. We're going to finish up with a track. So another 
one that Melissa has chosen. Thanks so much for joining us, Melissa. And anything you want to say about this final song? Uh, well, it's the idea of home. Everyone, we all have, have the right to live in a safe, secure home, um, irrespective of our species. And so this is just recognising the importance of, of home. CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.